What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. A quick warning before we begin. This episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional, which I'm sure to mispronounce often. I hope you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. Enjoy the show. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Stephen or else media, this is Hither Came Conan, treading the jeweled thrones of Hyboria beneath my sneakered feet, one comic book at a time. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and not that long ago, I discovered that my son's roommate had recently started to read the Robert E. Howard Conan stories for the very first time, and not just that, apparently he is now listening to the podcast. So I want everybody out there to say hello to Joe and ask him, uh, Hey Joe, what do you know? Just got back from Kokomo. Nah, that's a beach boys thing. Anyway, today we are finally getting back to the great Hyrcanian war storyline from Marvel's Conan books with Conan, the barbarian number 23. This issue sports a cover date of February, 1973, but it hit the stands in November, 1972. It sold for just 20 cents and it is entitled the shadow of the vulture. It was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith and inks by Dan Adkins, Chick Stone, and Sal Buscema. Into the boat! Previously in Conan the Barbarian. The King of Makalit tasks three of his soldiers to accompany Conan on a mission to journey east and to request the aid of the Queen's father in defending Makalit from the invading forces of Prince Yezdegerd. Before the small group sets out, the queen visits with Conan and gifts him a rune-covered armlet, which, she tells the Sumerian, will keep him safe until he can come back to them. The mission is interrupted when one of the Hyrcanian soldiers, Kurusan, betrays them all, killing everyone but Conan, who is left alive only to act as blood sacrifice to the god with no name. Kurusan calls forth the monster of the monoliths from a world beyond their own, and it goes straight for the Sumerian, drawn to him by the rune-covered armlet that the queen had said would keep him safe. Conan tosses the armlet to Kurasan, who, in an act of purest reflex, catches it. Too late, Kurasan realizes his mistake as the monster eats him before returning to its other-dimensional home. With nothing left for him to do, Conan, a man of his word, climbs onto his horse and rides away to complete his mission. As the issue opens, it's been three weeks since Conan set forth from Makalit, and he has at last arrived 
in Padishah, the city ruled by King Ganeth, the father of Queen Melisandre. Conan is eager to deliver his message and complete his mission. Unfortunately, the king's soldiers don't make it a habit to allow just any travel-stained barbarian off the streets to see their king. But Conan's a bit like Horton the Elephant. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. And an elephant's faithful 100%. And so he wages a small war with the city guard, killing a few of them on his way up the steps of the palace, calling out his demands to see the king every step of the way. Eventually, Conan manages to convince someone to grant his audience, and he's taken to see the king. The Sumerian delivers his message, completing his mission. King Ganeth, a plump man of excess who is surrounded by wealth and beautiful women, finds the barbarian more than a little interesting, and after paying Conan, assuring the Sumerian that soldiers will be dispatched to Makalit, he orders the Sumerian to entertain them with tales of his travels. With his obligation to the king of Makalit fulfilled, however, Conan ignores the ruler of Padishah and without a word, turns and walks away, leaving confusion and outrage in his wake. Once outside, Conan climbs atop his horse and rides south, because why not? Meanwhile, in the Turanian war camp outside Makalit, Prince Yezdegerd welcomes an old friend, Makal Oglu, the vulture, who wears fake wings on his back and is known on both sides of the Villette as an extremely skilled kicker of asses. After the prince and the vulture talk about how Yezdegerd got his scar, the winged warrior agrees to hunt down Conan and send the barbarian's head back to the prince, or, if he fails, allow Conan to send the vulture's head to the prince instead. Later, in a small unnamed village south of Makalit, Conan's sleeping one off in a mud-caked hut when a pretty young lady named Ivga, who's wearing the barbarian's necklace medallion, wakes him up to warn him that the countryside is on fire, set aflame by the Turanians, who, by the way, are also attacking the village. As Conan and Ivga attempt an escape, Makal Aglu the vulture, who is leading the attack, sees the Sumerian, and to paraphrase, shouts out to his men, There he is! Get him! Before Conan and Ivga have time to think, the girl is suddenly shot in the chest by an arrow. The Sumerian pulls her into a nearby hut and she dies in his arms as the soldiers surround them. Angry as all get out, Conan escapes out the back, steals a horse, and flees the village. Figuring that the enemy of his enemy is his friend, the barbarian rides north, hoping to find refuge from his pursuers in Makalit. Days later, the vulture's men still nipping at his heels, Conan arrives outside the walls of Makalit, just in time for his horse, exhausted from all the running, collapses and dies, throwing the barbarian into the ground. Conan's on his feet at once, and he runs to the safety of the city, certain death right behind him, when the city gates are thrown open and soldiers pour out to mix it up with the vulture's forces. These are not soldiers of Makalit, however. They are warriors from Padishah, and leading them is a red-headed she-devil wearing a shirt of chainmail and little red shorts. The Sumerian, despite the physical toll of being in the saddle for several days straight and riding a horse to death, joins the battle because, well, the guy just can't sit idly by while others do the fighting for him. The battle, however, is a short one, and soon the vulture and his men are in retreat. Conan, wasting little time, asks the lady warrior for her name, and she gives it to him, Red Sonia. The Sumerian tries to thank Red Sonia for coming to his aid, 
but she brushes him off, telling Conan that she was just doing her job. She makes it perfectly clear that had the Vulture's men caught up to the barbarian and cut his head off, well, she don't care. With that, she leaves Conan to brood and to be barked at by a passing puppy. Later that evening, McCall Oglu, the vulture, the dude with fake wings on his back, has an archer fire an arrow into the city. And tied to that arrow is a message for one of the prince's spies. Meanwhile, Conan's been doing some drinking. And as he's hanging out around the fire with the other soldiers, his attention is focused on just one of them. Red Sonia, who is sitting and drinking with another soldier, a great big smile plastered across her face. Earlier in the evening, a bowman had told Conan to get her out of his mind, that she's a devil, that she can drink the strongest man under the table and can outswear a Zingaran. But most importantly, she is all men's delight and no man's love. Conan, staring at Sonia from across the fire like a man in deep infatuation, thinks upon the bowman's words before taking a walk, cup in hand, possibly to wallow in those giant melancholies he's known for. Conan's on his way to nowhere in particular when the puppy from earlier finds him and begins barking at the large, brooding barbarian. The Sumerian yells at the tiny little pup as he gives it a kick before throwing his cup at it for good measure. He appears to miss the little guy with both the kick and the cup, but quickly discovers that his outburst has drawn the attention of Queen Melisandre, who suddenly appears on a balcony above him. The queen, leaning on the railing of the balcony and looking down at Conan with a joyful smile on her face, tells the barbarian that she's pleased to see that he has returned to them, the royal them. Conan says nothing. He only glares at her for a moment or two before walking away, snubbing the queen like a petulant teenager. Eventually, Conan finds himself in a tavern full of soldiers when a man bursts in to announce that Prince Yezdegerd's forces are attacking the South Wall. A great cry to arms is raised, and as the soldiers charge out of the tavern, one of them approaches Conan, telling the barbarian to come with him. Conan recognizes the man as Naram Pur, commander of the king's guard. Conan goes with Naram Pur, who turns out to be the prince's spy in Makalit, when he leads the barbarian into a trap. It's a trap! Pur's son, Rupin, hiding in the shadows of a dark alley, creeps up behind Conan and cracks him on the back of the head with a wooden club, dropping the burly barbarian like a big burlap bag of burgundy bricks. That's solid alliteration right there. When Conan comes to, he finds himself bound and gagged and sitting on the floor of a dark room. Per and his son are there, and with no prompting whatsoever, they tell the Sumerian everything. They tell him that they are the spies who work for Yezdegerd, and that earlier in the evening, they got a message from the vulture ordering them to grab up Conan and that they are in a long-abandoned watch station east of the city. Then they fire off their own messenger arrow to let the vulture know of their success, when from outside the watch station, a voice calls out for Conan, the voice of Red Sonia, the she-devil with a sword. Conan manages to remove his gag and shout back that he's there, but to be careful. Sonia then bursts into the room, chiding Conan for giving her advice about caution when he's the one trussed up like a feast day pig. Naram Pur and his son pull their swords, and the fighting commences. Sonia easily holds her own against the two men long enough to toss a knife Conan's way, so that he can free himself in time to knock Pur on his ass, leaving the spy alive. Conan, off-panel, 
tells Sonya all about Makal Aglu and his hunt for the Sumerian, so that when the winged man comes to get the barbarian, the two warriors are ready and waiting. Eventually, Makal Aglu arrives at the watch station with two men. Sonya is hiding in the shadows of the roof above them, and as the vulture enters, she takes out his two men in efficient silence before slamming the door shut behind the winged man, trapping him in the room alone with Conan. Swords are drawn, but before the fighting can commence, Conan smashes the lantern, blanketing the room in complete darkness before the scene shifts and the reader suddenly finds themselves face to face with an epilogue. As the issue ends, Prince Yezdegerd is kicking it in his pavilion outside the city, enjoying that evening's entertainment of half-naked dancing girls when a messenger from Makalit arrives. It's Narampur's son, Rupin, and he's brought with him a chest that he hands over to the prince. Yezdegerd opens the chest, and seeing what it contains, cries out in horror before dropping it and stumbling away in outrage. It's then that the narrator reminds us of something the vulture had told Yezdegerd earlier in the issue. If I bring you not his head, I give him leave to send you mine. Implying, of course, that within the chest lies the severed head of McCall Oglu. Hither Came Conan will return after these messages. According to the latest report from falsifiedstats.com, there are currently 12 million active comic book podcasts clogging up the internet superhighway, and 2.3 million new comic book podcasts are being created every single day. That's a lot to choose from, and yeah, it can get a bit overwhelming, especially since most of them all sound the same. You know, it's usually one to five guys, and they're sitting around, and they're just talking about their top picks from all the new issues that hit the shelves that week. If you're looking for something a little different, then let me tell you about Mike's Comic Shop Roadshow. Mike travels the globe and visits comic shops along the way, talking to the owners, the managers, or really just whomever happens to be minding the store that day. And it's through these conversations that you'll meet some wonderful people and learn how comic shops are run in places like Murfreesboro, Illinois, Pearl City, Hawaii, and Liverpool, New South Wales, Australia. But even more, Mike takes a comic book recommendation from each shop, he reads the comic, and then he gets together with a special guest or guests to discuss the comic in question. So do yourself a favor and check out Mike's Comic Shop Roadshow, a truly unique comic book podcast among billions of the same old, same old. Find it now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happened everywhere, man. Happened everywhere, man. Comic books in my hand, man. The smell of back issue pages, man. Comic shops, I've seen my share, man. Happened everywhere. I'm Mike, and I approve this message. And now back to Hither Came Conan. All right, so the story in this issue is based on The Shadow of the Vulture, a short story by Robert E. Howard that was first published in the January 1934 issue of the Magic Carpet magazine. The Robert E. Howard version, however, did not have Conan in it, and it was not a fantasy story. Instead, the original was a bit of historical fiction, which was set in the 16th century. And full disclosure, I didn't read it. It is available to purchase in various forms if you want to look for it. 
but it's also available to read for free online at Project Gutenberg Australia. But again, I didn't read it, partly because I didn't have the time, but mainly I skipped it because there's no Conan in the story. By the way, for the rest of the episode, I will be referring to Robert E. Howard as Bob. I mean, it's just easier that way. So with that said, while Bob's version did not have a black-haired Solonide Sumerian, it did have a guy with the great name of McCall Oglu. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And frankly, I don't care. I just love saying McCall Oglu. And it also had a redheaded woman named Red Sonia of Rogatino. But since I didn't read Bob's version, I did do a bit of research on it. And if you've been listening long enough, you know that when I say I did a bit of research, I just mean that I looked it up on Wikipedia and read what they had to say about it. I don't know. I looked it up on the Wikipedia. Regardless, as I was reading through the plot, I could see some of the various bits from Bob's version that Roy and Barry had used to make up the story for Conan the Barbarian number 23. In Bob's version, Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire sends a soldier named Makal Aglu to hunt down and kill a knight by the name of Gottfried von Kalmbach, because Kalmbach, it seems, had wounded Suleiman the Magnificent in a past battle. Aglu's forces raid a small village where Kalmbach is sleeping one off after a night of drinking, and he manages to escape to Vienna. The full Ottoman army lays siege to Vienna, and it's then in the city during the siege that Kallenbach meets a fiery red-headed woman who fights alongside the men, and again, her name is Red Sonia of Rogatino. At some point, Kallenbach is drugged and kidnapped by traitors within the walls of Vienna, a father and son duo, and Sonia comes to his rescue. And the story ends with Solomon the Magnificent at some sort of celebration when he receives a package which contains the head of McCall Oglu. Now, what I find fascinating about these Conan stories that Roy and Barry create that are based on a non-Conan story that Bob wrote, it's not the way in which the Marvel boys take all these story plots and convert them from characters in 16th century Vienna to sword and sorcery characters in the Hyborian Age. Well, like in Bob's story, we have Kallenbach and he's sleeping it off after a night of drinking in a small village when McCall Oglu's forces attack and Kallenbach escapes to Vienna. While in the comic, Conan is sleeping off a night of drinking in a small village when McCall Oglu's forces attack and Conan escapes to Mocklet. That's fun. I like that. I enjoy knowing where the spine of some of these comic stories come from. But What I find even more fascinating is the stuff that Roy finds in these original Bob stories that he can match up with something he's already done in a previous issue and then use that as a springboard to create the rest of the story. For example, from what I understand, Roy and Barry had already come up with the story for issue number 20, The Black Hound of Vengeance, which is also based off of another Bob Howard non-Conan story. But from what I've been able to find, They put that story together for issue 20 before they started working up the story for this issue here, issue number 23, meaning that they had already established this moment at the end of issue 20 where Conan kills Balthaz and slashes Yezdegerd across the face with his sword, which 
then provides Yezdegerd with this motivation to hunt down and kill Conan, right? So Roy then finds this other Bob Howard story, The Shadow of the Vulture, and he finds that there is an important royal type person who wants to hunt down and kill a knight for wounding him. And Roy's like, hey, that's kind of like what we have already established here in Conan with Yezdegerd. And because that kind of matches up, I'll use the rest of the story, change the names and the places, and bam, we got us a new issue. Of course, that's just a complete assumption on my part. I don't know that Roy didn't already know about the Shadow of the Vulture when they were putting issue 20 together. I mean, maybe he did. And so he took that bit from Shadow of the Vulture for the ending of issue 20, knowing that it would eventually lead to the events in issue number 23. I mean, I have no idea how far in advance he and Barry had these issues plotted out. I've just always had this assumption, you know, this gut feeling that back then they were writing issue to issue, that they weren't outlining five to six issues at a time in order to try and build like some kind of, I don't know, a sense of continuity that when they were plotting out in this case, issue number 20, they weren't also thinking about how the events in issue 20 might pop up in issue 23 or beyond. Now, all I really have to go on in regard to this assumption is what Roy has written about in his three-volume series, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian. And in volume one, in the chapter in which Roy talks about issue 20, I would like to think that had he used the events from the shadow of the vulture to come up with the ending to issue 20, he would have mentioned it in the book. And he didn't. At least, I, <laughs> I don't remember it coming up. Good Lord. I should probably go look before I make that kind of a statement. Conan, there are six of them against him. One, two, three. I think you're right. All right, so not only does Roy not mention the shadow of the vulture in the issue 20 chapter of Barbarian Life, he actually says, and I quote, As Conan moves toward the ship's rail, Yezdegerd steps in and Conan wounds him on the cheek. The mark never disappears in the comic book Yezdegerd, and we get to see it again in a lot of later episodes. Neither the scar nor this early encounter with Yezdegerd has any equivalent in Robert E. Howard's stories or even in DeCamp's writings. So yeah, I would like to think that had the ending of issue 20 been based on the shadow of the vulture, Roy would have mentioned it. And that bit there, it would have been the perfect time to do so. Speaking of barbarian life, there are, as I said, three volumes, and all three were published by Sumerian Press, and they have recently launched a new site, sumerianpress.com. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, but they have a bunch of other Conan and Howard-based books over there if you want to go give them a look. As for the rest of the issue, I think the most important bit we haven't really talked about yet is Red Sonia. She is, of course, a creation of Robert E. Howard, having appeared originally in The Shadow of the Vulture, but the Bob version of Sonia and the comic Sonia are practically two different characters, which, I mean, you could say the same thing about Conan, but there are much bigger differences in regard to the character of Red Sonia. First, of course, is the fact that Bob's version is not set in the Hyborian Age. She's a gunslinger of Slavic origins. Plus, Bob spells her name S-O-N-Y-A while the comic Sonia is S-O-N-J-A. In fact, whenever Conan says her name in the comics, and it starts right here with this issue, they spell it S-O-N 
hyphen Y A. Like he's breaking the two syllables apart, Sonia, which has just always driven me a bit crazy whenever I would read Conan saying her name in that way, because I would hear it in my head as Sonia, like he just suddenly turned into a caveman. By the way, while this is the first time I'm reading this particular issue, it's not the first time I've read a Conan issue with Red Sonia in it. I'd actually read a number of those back in the 80s. Another, by the way, you'll probably find that I tend to switch between Sonia and Sonia. I'm not sure why I do that, but (laughs) you go. It is what it is. A third, by the way, if I haven't said it yet, this issue, Conan the Barbarian number 23, holds the distinction of being the first appearance of Red Sonia. She then goes on, of course, to appear in many more issues of Conan the Barbarian, Savage Sword of Conan, King Conan, Colin the Barbarians, and Marvel Feature, as well as her own series. She even appeared alongside Spider-Man a few times. The most notable appearance for me is Marvel Team-Up number 79 from December of 1978, because that leads into one of my favorite X-Men stories from the 80s, and now I can't remember what those two issues are, but they deal with the medallion that's in that Marvel Team-Up issue and Kulin Gath. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, Conan and the way he said her name with a hyphen and the Y. Like I said, it just drove me crazy. And I never understood the reasoning why they did that. Over the years, I have tried to find out, which, you know, just means I went to Google and I would try a few searches and see what I could find. And for the longest time, I would always come across basically two different answers or explanations for this weird audio quirk of Conan's. It was either A, Conan is constantly mispronouncing her name, or B, Conan's Sumerian accent is such that he places more of an emphasis on the separation of the two syllables. But here's the thing, all right? I've always considered both of those explanations to be complete and utter horse duke. And I'd kind of like to use the opportunity here to address both of them, because the fact of the matter is that I'm still seeing both of those explanations out there on the internet as accepted schools of thought. Now, to be fair, I have run across a third possible explanation, and we'll get into that one. But let's start first with this idea that Conan is simply unable, for whatever reason, to correctly pronounce Sonya's name, which, when I think about it, does kind of go hand in hand with the whole accent thing. But here's why I call BS on this one. If Conan's first introduction to Sonia involved him reading her name in writing before he heard it spoken, like, I don't know, maybe she was wearing a name tag that said, hello, my name is Red Sonia, then I might be able to buy this idea or at least accept it for as long as it would take for him to eventually hear her name spoken aloud. But she tells him her name. He hears her pronounce it. She says, they call me Red Sonia, they that speak of me at all. And his immediate response is to say, Sonia, with the hyphen and the Y, which, again, it just drives me nuts because, like I said, when I see it written that way, to me, it feels like Conan has just suddenly turned into Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Tell me about the rabbits, Sonia. Tell me about the rabbits. But I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that hears it that way in their head. I don't know. And to be fair, I've already admitted that I often find myself switching from one pronunciation to the other, Sonia or Sonia. So 
I guess I can't really judge the Sumerian. Regardless, I don't think that he's mispronouncing her name, so I call bunk on that one. The second often touted explanation is that the hyphen with the Y spelling in all of Conan's word balloons are just a visual representation of Conan's Sumerian accent. And I call bunk on that one as well, because, I mean, I'd like to think that if they were making a conscious decision to write her name in such a way that it points out this accent that anyone else outside of Sumeria just doesn't have, then we would see it in other places throughout the issues. We'd see them lettering his words in certain ways, like the way they do with her name, to emphasize this accent that he may or may not have, right? And again, (laughs) I keep coming back to this, but it drives me crazy. And the moment I realized that she was going to be in this issue, that this was her first appearance, I was actually just super pumped to read what Roy had to say about it in his book, because certainly he talked about it, right? Right? Well, no, he doesn't even mention it. I mean, here I thought I was finally going to get the answer to the question that's been eluding me all these years. Why does Conan sound like an idiot whenever he says Red Sonia's name? But no, not at all. And when I finished that section of the book, the section that deals with issue number 23, only to find out that I still had the same questions, that I wasn't going to finally close this chapter in my life, I, I felt a bit deflated. I felt defeated. And then I got pretty angry. I mean, if I can use a little bit of hyperbole here, for about 0.3 seconds, I thought about shutting down the podcast and just walking away from it. But then I took a breath, I centered myself, and I Googled the question one more time. And here's the thing. I made the effort to look past the first three to four links that popped up as a result of my search, and I stumbled upon the third explanation that I mentioned earlier. The third explanation is that the reason behind the way Conan says Sonia's name was to ensure that readers understood that her name was Sonia and not Sonja. And that, folks, made perfect sense to me. I mean, I mentioned earlier that her name was spelled with a J and not with a Y like her Bob Howard counterpart. And so someone at Marvel, be it Roy or Stan or whomever, they worried that the readers especially those who were familiar with the Bob Howard story, that they would assume that her name was Sonja simply because it was spelled differently. And so they have Conan, after she gives him her name, they have him say it phonetically. And then they just kept that in there for whatever reason. But I don't know. That's the only explanation that I've been able to find that I can get behind. What do you think? Do you buy that? Send me an email, stevenorls at gmail.com, because I want to know your thoughts. Oh, I should also add that the chainmail bikini that Red Sonia is known for, it is not part of her original design here in this issue. Instead, she's wearing like a chainmail shirt with long sleeves and little red shorts. Hither Came Conan will return after these messages. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. 
Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now back to Hither Came Conan. Speaking of Red Sonia and the shadow of the vulture, Roy had been wanting to add a new female character to Conan's story, but he wanted one who could kick ass and who could give Conan shit when he needed it. Basically, somebody who could stand toe-to-toe with the big barbarian. A woman who was handy with a blade and could kill just as many people and drink just as much beer as Conan. And he wanted her to have red hair because Bob Howard in the couple dozen stories that he had written featuring Conan, he had introduced Belit in Queen of the Black Coast and she had black hair. And he also introduced Valeria in Red Nails and her hair was blonde. And so to stand out basically from those two characters, Roy figured that his new character would need to be a ginger. But beyond this new character that he was looking for, Roy was also looking for a story to fit in with the whole, you know, Hyrcanian war story that he'd been telling for the last few issues. And lo and behold, he stumbles across the shadow of the vulture, which just happened to have everything he was looking for. So yeah, that's how we got issue number 23. But here's my question, because Roy has yet to address this in Barbarian Life, or he hasn't yet, or if he has, I just haven't noticed. But what I want to know is this, was it a directive for Marvel Comics that Roy, whenever possible, had to adapt a Robert E. Howard story for these Conan issues? Because the way he talks in his book, Sometimes it sounds like he spent a lot of time looking for Howard stories that would fit into whatever the narrative was at the time. I mean, that makes some sort of sense, right? Marvel at the time, or at least when the title began, was paying the Howard estate $200 per issue just so they could use Conan. So did Stan or maybe even Martin Goodman figure that if they're going to pay this rate per issue just to use the character, then maybe they shouldn't spend too much time writing up brand new stories when they could adapt one of those that Bob had already written himself. Does anybody know the answer to that question? Because I I don't. I can't find it anywhere. Stephen or else at gmail.com. Fill me in. Give me the 411, folks, because inquiring Stephen Minds need to know. Getting deeper into the issue, uh, despite having the extra time due to the previous issue being a reprint of issue number one, the creative team were still plagued with deadline issues. And so they had to bring on two extra inkers to get the book out on time. Also, Roy didn't much care for the way Barry had introduced the vulture into the issue. When his pages started coming back, Roy found it a bit casual and he wanted something more fitting for the big bad of the issue. And so he wrote up a script for an extra page and he had Sal Buscema pencil and ink it. So, yeah, page six of the issue or page five of the story is the only page in the issue without any Barry on it whatsoever. Going further, Barry had made the decision to get rid of Conan's medallion necklace thing in this issue, which I completely missed. I didn't notice it at all and probably wouldn't have realized until, I don't know, a few issues later if Roy hadn't mentioned it in his book. But page 11 of the issue or page eight of the story, if you look at it, when Conan's 
sleeping off a night of drinking in that mud-covered hut, you'll see that he's no longer wearing the necklace. And then when Ivga, was that her name? I don't remember now. But when the girl enters to wake him up, she's wearing the necklace. And then when she dies, she's still wearing the necklace. And because he has to get out of there, PDQ, he doesn't retrieve it. And so, bam, necklace is gone. And I find that kind of stuff interesting because when I first started reading Conan books, when I was, you know, in the 80s and I was reading some of these Conan books from the 80s, I didn't read a lot, but I would read them every now and then. Conan wasn't always wearing the same thing in every issue. And so when I started from the beginning, you know, for this podcast, I was actually a bit thrown out of a loop or whatever you want to call it when Conan just kept wearing the same thing over and 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 over. over. Because when the title began, you know, there was this whole superhero comics sensibility thing going on. And through that, Roy and Barry put Conan in, I guess, for lack of a better term, they put him in a costume. He had the sandals with the straps that wound up his calves. He had the little fur trunks. He had a pair of wide bracelets on each wrist. He had a thin, like, armlet thing on his right forearm. He had the medallion necklace, and he had that horned helmet. And except for a fur cape that he wears in the beginning of issue two and a white cape in issue five, this is what Conan wore until they got rid of the helmet in issue six. He is wearing a pair of fur boots and a different horned helmet in issue 16, which is the Frost Giant's daughter. But that was set before the events of issue one, so I don't think that counts. But after losing the helmet in issue six, he continues to wear the same thing, minus the helmet, issue to issue, until number 17, when he's just suddenly wearing boots instead of sandals. He then dons like a leather sleeveless shirt and a helmet for issues 19 and 20, which basically are armor because he's going into battle. This is when the whole Hurricanian War thing starts and they're gone by issue number 21. But in that issue, he actually trades in those fur trunks for more of a skirt type thing. And then here in issue number 23, he loses the necklace. He still has the bracelets and the armlet thing, but I don't know. It's kind of interesting that over these 23 issues at some point, well, I guess with issue six, Barry was, you know, he didn't like the helmet anymore. So he wanted to get rid of it. And then as they continued on this idea that, you know, he's, he's not a superhero. This is not a superhero comic. It's sword and sorcery. And those folks in those kinds of stories didn't necessarily have costumes per se. And so very slowly they've been changing up in very slight ways what Conan has been wearing. And uh, yeah, that's everything I know about this issue. That's it. That's all. That's all I know. If there's anything you'd like to add, Stephen or else at gmail.com. Until then, let's move on to Stephen's Stephen's favorite favorite bits. All right. Starting with the cover, we have Conan, a sword in one hand and a dagger in the other. He's standing on some stone steps. There's a dead body at his feet and another one on the steps somewhere in front of him, down below him. And then standing above that second body is McCall Oglu. The Vulture. I don't know why I keep saying his name that way. Agu. I just, I love his name. Now, the Vulture is also holding a sword. And he's telling Conan, Perhaps you found those dogs an easy prey, Conan, but now you are cornered, trapped by the Vulture. And we have a little title in the lower right-hand corner that says, Swords in the Night. This cover's all right. It, It doesn't really stand out to me. It's not one of my favorites. It was... Done by Gil Kane, because I guess Barry didn't want to do another Vulture cover, because he'd already made the one that they used for issue 
22, which I go into in that episode. I'm not going to go into it all again, but because he'd already done one cover that was supposed to go with the story, he didn't want to do another one. So they had Gil Kane do it. And that's kind of sad because I did actually like the cover that Barry had put together. I mean, I didn't care for the way the vulture was colored. I, I talked about that in that episode, but it was certainly a better looking cover than this one. Opening up the issue, we are straight into the action with a great looking splash page. And I love that Conan, you know, he's come to this city. He's got this mission. He's supposed to find or, or, or go see the king of Pa de Shah. This is the father of the queen of Makalit. He's supposed to deliver this message to the guy. And I guess being who he is, he just kind of walks into the city and starts walking up the palace steps. And he's like, I'm going to see your king. And all these soldiers are like, hey, you can't just come in and see the king. That's, that's not something that we just let people do. And so rather than say, all right, well, uh, could you just tell him I'm here? I'll, I'll, just, I'll just sit here and wait. Just tell him I'm here. I have a message from his daughter. I'll wait. It's cool. I understand. No, instead, he's like, screw you. And <laughs> I guess he just starts muscling his way past him. Because when we get into the story, he's already in mid fight with these soldiers. And he's already killed at least three of them because we can see two bloody corpses on the steps and another one at his feet. Well, that guy might not be dead. Actually, it looks like he's wrestling with Conan and the other two guys might not be dead either. I don't know. They could just be bleeding out there on the steps. They may have a chance at survival, but I just, I love it. I love that thing about Conan that, you know, I can only assume, like I said, that he shows up, he starts walking up the palace steps, a guard kind of steps in front of him and is like, where are you going, barbarian, you dirty cur? And Conan's like, I want to go see the king. And the guy's like, no, we don't just let anybody in to see the king, buddy. Cool your heels. And instead of saying, all right, that's fair, he just starts throwing down and he probably starts, you know, throwing fists. And then eventually the sword comes out and he just starts killing folks. But then eventually, of course, he's allowed to see the king. Because it's after he's killed a couple of guys that he's, you know, finally mentions, oh, I've got a message from his daughter. And somebody's like, oh, well, okay, well, why didn't you say so in the first place? And so they take him in to see the king. And I love the king, King Ganif, because he's lounging. He's not on a throne. He's kind of like on this, I don't know, fluffy chair, a comfy chair. And he's kind of a round guy and he's got half naked women all around him. And he just looks kind of like one of these bored royal type people. You know, he's he's got so much money. He's got so much power that he's just bored with it all. I can picture him just yawning all the time and his people coming to him with news and, and reports. And he just like, eh, whatever, somebody needs to entertain me. And then he finds out Conan is there and he's like, oh, barbarian from the north, bring him in. And he's more interested in hearing tales of Conan's adventures than he is about hearing anything about his daughter. And then I love that Conan, when the guy's like, here's some money. Thank you for the message. I'll make sure that some soldiers are sent at once to aid Mokalit. Until then, entertain me. And Conan's just like, whatever, and gives him the middle finger and walks away, basically. He didn't really give him the middle finger, but Conan's just like, yeah, I don't think so. That's not what I do. I'm not your dancing monkey. I'm going to leave. I'm out of here. Bye-bye. The introduction of the vulture or the vulture in general, I, it's not one of my favorite bits, but I feel like we got to talk about this guy because there's really nothing in this issue to explain why he is known as the vulture. 
All we know is that he just kicks ass. He's a expert swordsman. He's known all over the area as a dangerous man. But we don't know why he's called the Vulture. And maybe in the Robert E. Howard story, they do explain it. But that doesn't do me any good unless I read the Robert E. Howard story. So all I have to go on is the fact that he's got these fake wings on his back. And I assume they're fake because we never see him fly. We don't see the wings flap. He's not Hawkman. You know, that's that's not something that we are, I guess, privy to. So we have to assume that the wings are fake. And then we have to assume that the only reason he's known as the Vulture is because he's got fake wings on his back. But that just brings the question, why the frick does he have fake wings on his back? What's what's the point? What's the point of the wings? And so all I can do is surmise that at some point, Barry is putting this issue together and he's like, oh, this guy's called the Vulture. I guess I better put wings on his back so we know that that's why he's called the Vulture. And I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know, he might have worn wings in the Bob Howard story. I don't know because I didn't read it. If you read it, let me know. Are the wings a product of the comic or did they come from the original story? Steven or else at gmail.com. Call now. Our operators are standing by. But to continue with the vulture, there's this moment where I guess Roy and Barry feel like if they're going to introduce this guy as someone who's going after Conan, we need to understand that he's not somebody to be trifled with. And so they create this scenario where the vulture just suddenly, as he's talking to the prince about going after Conan, he questions whether the prince thinks that he can handle the job. And so to prove that he's still the badass he always was, he has the prince choose one of his soldiers, one of his best fighters, actually, and orders him to cross swords with the vulture. And the guy doesn't want to. But because he's ordered to by the prince, they they fight. And luckily, I guess, the vulture does not kill the guy. Because otherwise, it's like, man, this poor soldier, he's just minding his own business. And it's because he's good. It's because he's a good fighter that suddenly he has to go up against, you know, the the most feared soldier in, in all the land. I don't know. I thought it was a pretty dumb moment. It's not one of my favorite bits. It was pretty stupid. So, so stupid. I do, however, like the little puppy <laughs> that Conan encounters twice in this issue. The first time after Conan is, I don't know that you'd say he's hitting on Red Sonia. It's its his first meeting with her and she basically flubs him, flubs him, snubs him, snubs him. She basically snubs him and he's standing in this courtyard alone after she walks away and he's, he's kind of unhappy about that. And this little puppy runs out and starts barking at him and he tells the, the puppy to shut up or something. Over there, you shut up. But then the second time we see the puppy, Conan kicks at it and he throws his cup at it. He's got like a, a a cup of beer or meat or whatever. And Roy talks about this in his book, and he says that it's not a scene that he liked. He he was not happy with the scene, and he he basically says nobody liked it. Nobody liked the scene because despite the fact that Conan is this big bruiser who has killed all kinds of people and not always in a morally justified way, people had a hard time with Conan kicking at a puppy and throwing a cup at it. Now, it's obvious that the puppy wasn't hurt, so I don't know what the big deal was. And Barry must have thought it was funny because he's the one that included it. But I guess people have a line when it comes to Conan and what he will do. 
after the puppy incident, there's the scene with uh, Queen Melisandre because when he kicks at the puppy and he throws the cup at it, he's he's shouting at it. You shut up! And he just happens to be standing when this happens. He just happens to be standing underneath the queen's balcony. And so she comes out and she seems genuinely happy to see him. And when we talked about that issue, the monster of the monoliths, which I think was issue 21, I'm fairly certain that I threw out the idea that maybe Melisandre didn't know what she was doing when she gave Conan that armlet, that Karam Akkad, the wizard guy, you know, maybe he brought it to her and said, give this to Conan. It's a good luck charm. It'll, it'll, it'll protect him. And she fully believed that when she gave it to him. And I feel like this scene here, for me anyway, that kind of cements that in place. And then, <laughs> oh my God, the scene where the two spies, the father and son, when they explain everything to Conan about what's going on and they justify it by saying, yes, barbarian, we are the spies in which the Turanians have in Makalit, nor do I mind telling you all this for no one can help you out here. That is just, that is such a corny trope. And yeah, I get it. It's 1972. But whenever the bad guy, but for the bad guy in a story, nothing will guarantee that his plan is going to fail and that the hero will triumph more than when the villain explains his entire plan and his motivation for the plan, when he explains everything to the hero and then justifies it by stating that you're not going to survive, so it's really no big deal for me to tell you all this. And that, again, it's a trope. It's something that the writer does so that the reader knows what's going on. Roy felt like that, uh, you know, us as the reader, we weren't going to understand that this father and son team, that they were spies, not, not just that they were spies, but that they were the spies that they, the, uh, the prince or somebody, Balthaz, talked about a couple issues back and that we wouldn't understand that they kidnapped Conan because the vulture ordered them to, or that we wouldn't understand that they were kind of in an out of the way place. And so rather than, I guess, narrating what, what's going on, he has the villains just explain it to Conan because as far as they're concerned, he's not going to live anyway. So it's really no big deal for them to tell Conan exactly what's going on. I just, I don't know. So dumb. <laughs> Do you want to be spies like us? Can we be spies like them? But uh, I did like the ending. I, I actually like that we didn't see the head. You know, the Comics Code Authority would never have let them show the head. I guess it's made very clear in the original story that the package that the Sultan receives has McCall Oglu's head in it. But we, you know, we have to go by what the narration says. And it, it's, it's fairly clear. But uh, we have to imagine what his head looks like in that chest. I just, I, it was a great scene. I love the scene because Prince Yazdegerd is just all, you know, pumped. Everything's going well for him. They haven't made it into the city. They haven't got the Tareem back because that's the whole point of the the holy war that they started because Karamakad convinced the king of Makhlet to steal away the Tareem, their their holy deity, the 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 man god. It's a just a regular guy, but they think he's the reincarnation of Jesus basically. But yeah, Prince Yezdegerd, he's kind of a dick and he's feeling kind of good even though they haven't quite won yet. And then he gets the head of his his buddy who, I mean, they're not best friends, but uh, he's really upset about it. And uh, I thought the ending was pretty good. Now, as far as the comic itself, the, the, you know, as a whole, it was all right. 
if I, I guess if I were to rank it or if I was to, to place it in order, uh, I, I don't know, in, in, in some favor in regard to this Holy War story in general, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, not, it's not the worst issue of the story so far, but it's not the best. It's all right. I'm really kind of bummed that, you know, the quality of the art since Barry has come back has not been great. There's some great pages here and there, but, you know, one of the things that uh, Roy points out in his book throughout these 23 issues is that originally when it started, when the, when the title started, the book came out once every two months, then it went to a monthly schedule. I think then it went back to once every two months and then came back again to a monthly schedule. And at this point, they're back at the monthly schedule and Barry just can't keep up with that. And that's fine. That's, to me, that's justifiable because when Barry is given the time to put into the book what he you know, what he's capable of. I mean, just look at the first page. Just look at the splash page. That is a great looking page. But there are pages here and there that just don't look great because at some point in the creation of these issues, since he's come back and since they're on a monthly schedule, at some point he's, you know, he has to start to rush and then they have to add these extra inkers. And it just, I don't know, I was hoping for more when Barry came back. And every once in a while, we get a page or a panel. That's just 100% Barry shining through and it looks just great, but we don't see that on every page of every one of these issues. And uh, that kind of sucks. That sucks! I guess the only other thing I want to say about this issue is that uh, I really don't know a lot about the character of Red Sonia. While I've read uh, you know, a handful of Conan issues in the past that featured her in the issues, I don't know that I've ever read any of her solo titles. I, I just don't know a lot about her. And I've always, I've always been a bit put off by the chainmail bikini. And, you know, it wasn't until recently that I realized that my thinking there, I guess, is a, it's a bit hypocritical because when I see artwork, because she, you know, she's got a series now, Dynamite has the rights to her license and Dynamite puts out a Red Sonia comic. And whenever I see artwork from it or covers and whatnot, and she's in that chainmail bikini, I immediately shake my head and it kind of turns me off because in my mind, I'm thinking that, you know, of course they're, they're, they're doing that to pander to a fan base that they feel are mostly fanboys who, you know, like a little titillation. And when I look at it, it's like, yeah, 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 sexy, sure. But it's not practical. A real warrior, albeit in a fantasy setting, you know, wouldn't, they just wouldn't dress that way. And yet at the same time, I seem to not have any problem with Conan running around in nothing but little fur trunks and some boots. So yeah, I guess that's a little hypocritical of me because when I think of, you know, my, my, my immediate thought when I would see her scantily clad in the, in the chainmail bikini, my, my first thought of course is, ah, it's just cheesecake. They're just trying to titillate their fan base to sell more comics and with Conan, it just, I don't even blink an eye. It just doesn't even enter into my head. I'm not like, Psh, they're just trying to get some women to read this book because he's big, sexy, half-naked man. And so, yeah, I guess that's something I need to think about in my head. But I think that's all I have to say about this one. That's, that's, that's about it. Those are my favorite bits. That's all the information I know. What did you think? Shoot me an email, Stephen or else at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to keep moving forward with this epic Hyrcanian Holy War story with Conan the Barbarian number 24 from December 
1972, which is titled The Song of Red Sonia. Until then, folks, keep your swords close by, never stop treading them jeweled thrones, and most importantly, be nice to each other. Bye. Feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. From Stephen Oro. From Stephen Oro. The king of Makalit tasks three of his soldiers to accompany Conan. I just want to say that I am not feeling well today. But I got to get this recorded. The king of Makalit tasks three of his soldiers to accompany Conan on a mission. A mission. A mission. I mentioned yet that I'm very sick. I hope that's not coming across in the podcast. I feel like I sound like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from the old Rankin and Bass Christmas special, you know, after they put the coal or the dirt or whatever it is on his nose to hide his nose from public and his voice is all stuffy sounding. That's I'm pretty sure that's what I sound like right now. Eventually, Conan manages to convince someone to grant his audience and he's taken to the king. God, I got to do each freaking line twice, at least. Eventually, (coughs) eventually Conan farts in somebody's face. Getting frustrated. Shake it off. Shake it off. Shake it off. He orders the Sumerian to boobies. The barbarian rides north, hoping to find refuge from his pursuers. 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 Kermit the Frog here. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible impersonation. The Sumerian. Hey, I'm cracking my voice. The Sumerian then tries to <laughs> Meanwhile, Conan's been doing some drinking, and as he's hanging out around the fire with the old <sighs> I don't know if my voice is gonna make the make it make it <laughs> can't even just talk regularly. Regularly. I don't know if my voice is gonna make it through this entire episode. <sighs> Conan's out strolling the streets when the puppy from earlier finds him and begins barging. <laughs> Conan's out strolling the streets when the puppy from earlier finds ah. Conan's out strolling the streets as the puppy from no that kid Jesus flip. Conan recognizes the man as Naram Pur. Conan Conan recognizes the man as Naram Pur, commander of the Queen's Jesus flip. This is why my voice is not going to last because I can't just read this. Calm it down, calm it down, calm it down, calm it down. Just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Enough talk!